We're continuing our series today in 2 Samuel, and we'll be in chapter 11 today. It's a turning point, really, in the story. We'll see that as we get into that. But I want to begin by asking the question, I'm curious if you've ever found yourself in a situation or circumstances where you're asking the question, how did I get here? How did I end up here? Uh, several years ago, I was a youth pastor at a church over in Schaumburg, and it was a larger church. We were hosting a large pastor's conference at the time, and I was tasked with uh, the, the duties of going to the airport and picking up some of the, the conference speakers, some of the important ones who would be leading the conference. And so I picked them up at O'Hare, and normally you would get on I-90 and go 20 minutes west Uh, until you get to the Roselle exit, Uh, and yet I pick them up from O'Hare, and about 20 minutes into the ride, I start looking for that Roselle exit, and the next sign that I see says Lake Hook Road. And if you don't know where that is, it's 20 minutes straight north of O'Hare instead of 20 minutes west, and my heart sank. And I didn't say anything to the guys in the car with me, I was trying to be a good host, I was distracted, and now I'm embarrassed and confused and inside thinking, how in the world did I get here? When, you, when you're trying to get on 90 from O'Hare, there are two immediate exits that you have to take in a row, and I only took the first one. And so I'm on 294, and I'm going straight north. I, I don't think, I don't, can't remember for sure, but I don't think I told them Ever. And so I turned a 20-minute ride into a 60-minute ride and just kind of tried to play it off like, this is how long it takes. And <laughs> probably whoever took them back to the airport when they realized, oh, this should have been much shorter is when they realized that Dan took a wrong turn. But it is, it is a, a brief, quick, uh, wrong decision immediately or mistake that set us on a trajectory down a path that until I stopped and realized where we were, had me feeling like, how could this have happened? Ended up in a completely wrong place. In a completely different circumstance, I had a friend say these same words to me. His life was falling apart. Been cheating on his wife, lying, covering it up, living in deceit, he was miserable, he was depressed. Uh, stuck in sin, and then through tears on the phone, he said to me, Dan, how did I get here? He said, growing up, I used to hate the hypocrisy and just, just think, that could never be me. How could someone live like that and ruin their lives like that and ruin their family's life like that? And, and he said, and now it's me. How did I end up here? And this is... This is the path of sin that appears pleasant, it appears promising, it appears right, but it's this gradual descent into deeper and darker and more destructive territory. It's what we we read about in David's life in 2 Samuel 11. It's it's this turning point in, in, in seeing David's failure and his downward descent toward more and more destructive sin. He had just been, these last five chapters were were celebrating David as 
as the king that we need, as, as he's united God's people in God's place under God's rule and, and blessing, and he's, he's victorious, and he moves the ark to Jerusalem, and, and so God's presence is with his people. And then in chapter 7, God makes this covenant with David, saying, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And so David is, is given these promises of covenant relationship with God and as, as he is representing God's people. And then, and then we read of his victory as God is with him in battle and he's defeating Israel's enemies. He's, he's leading them into that and God is blessing them. And it says, it says that David is ruling with righteousness and with justice. And we, it, we start to look then at what is the greatest threat to David's relationship with God and, and to David as king and to his covenant with Yahweh. And we see David's greatest threat as king, it, it wasn't the external threats. He's victorious in all of those. It, wa it wasn't the enemies that, that were coming at him from outside. The vulnerability was in David's heart. The greatest threat to his relationship with God was what the, the war that was happening inside David as he begins to take these steps away, further and further away from God. The path of sin appears pleasant, but the steps are deeper and darker and more destructive. Before looking at it, though, I, I just want to say this is a text that's It's difficult to read. It's a warning passage. We're seeing his sin. But before we even look into that, I, I want us to know that these warnings are God's gracious warnings for us, that there is grace, there is mercy, there is salvation. We're not even going to cover the whole story today. And so we're, we're not going to, we're going to save chapter 12 for next week as David repents and we'll, we'll read of his confession in Psalm 51 next week. But today, even as we watch David take these steps, every step is a chance for us to turn back and to, to, to rest in God's grace and to find his mercy. But it is good for us to acknowledge the warnings that are there because that is God's good grace as well. So let's begin reading in, in verse one. We're going to see five steps of David's descent into sin Starting in verse 1, we'll just read this first verse. It says, In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. This first step seems harmless. You read that sentence by itself and you just think, oh, it's kind of unique that kings are supposed to go out, but David remained. But as you start to unfold this story, you realize that verse is there for a reason and it's showing David's vulnerability to temptation. That there was some reason that he stayed back, whether it's lack of responsibilities or laziness or overconfidence. There was something in David that kept him from fulfilling his, his royal calling to, to lead his troops. He sent them out and he stayed back. And, and if you read the whole story, 
By the time you come to the end, after David repents and he's restored to God, it actually says then again, David is out once again leading his troops. And so you take the beginning and the end of that, and it does, it does signify, okay, this is here for a reason. There's, there's some reason here that as David stayed back, neglecting his responsibilities, that he's more open, more vulnerable to temptation in such a way that we almost think, if he had just done what he was supposed to do, maybe all of these steps could have been avoided. I enjoy hunting deer. Uh, and one of the things that you learn as a deer hunter, I know that alienates some of you, but just stick with me. Um, you realize that mature deer, older deer, older bucks, are, have very good instincts and patterns that keep them safe. And normally, older bucks, you don't see them out wandering around in broad daylight. They'll, they'll move much more often in the middle of the night or right around dusk and dawn. And they also are very good with their noses. Uh, deer, that's, that is their, their main way of being alert to threats. It's not seeing the threat. It's actually smelling. And so they'll position themselves downwind from where potential threats, potential predators could be. However... There is a time, and we're getting really close to it right now, at the end of October through the first couple weeks of November, which is peak mating season for deer. It's called the rut. And during this time, deer become more vulnerable to threats. Uh, because bucks, specifically, have one thing on their mind, it's a different priority now, more important even than keeping themselves safe. They, they don't eat as much during this time. They lose actually a lot of weight. They're running around constantly. They don't sleep well, so they're, they're exhausted. They're, you, you can see them sometimes panting as they're running through the woods. You will notice, maybe, uh, that there will be many more deer killed on the side of the road during those three weeks than the rest of the year. And so just watch out for that coming up. That's a side warning, I guess. But, but more so, it's because the deer are just less cautious. Their instincts have shifted to where they're more vulnerable to the threat. They're not paying as close of attention. And that also makes them more vulnerable to hunters as well. Now, Here's, here's a lesson for us. We actually, if we pay attention, can realize there are certain times, there are certain circumstances that can open us up to more, being more vulnerable to temptation. It can be physical things as well, physical exhaustion and uh, lack of discipline in, in some physical health things that, that, can, that can sometimes then spread into spiritual as well, and sometimes a lack of discipline in one area of our lives often becomes contagious and spreads into other areas and, and just makes us more vulnerable. Even, even things like hunger can make us more vulnerable to certain temptations. And it's just, it's good to be aware of those or neglecting some of our spiritual disciplines of Bible reading and, and prayer, gathering regularly with the church. Uh, the, the Bible tells us, Hebrews actually tells us that, that that's a warning to us that when we neglect to gather together, it leaves us more vulnerable to being hardened by the deceitfulness of our sin. Paul tells us to train ourselves for godliness and, and also says that we need to make every effort to pursue holiness. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. And so these things, it's just helpful for us 
to step back and think, are there ways right now that I'm making temptation stronger in my life? Uh, Things that I'm watching, things that I'm scrolling through mindlessly, the the intake that I have, the people that I'm surrounding myself, Am am I overwhelming myself with temptation in such a way that I'm It's going to be harder and harder to resist. And there are ways that we need to pay attention to this vulnerability to temptation. The regular gathering with God's people, the the serving in the church, the, the, the Bible reading and the prayer, and these disciplines do help protect us when temptation comes. But David, in that condition, takes another step. And his next step is an internal one of lust, as he will read about it in verses 2 and 3. It says, One evening David got up from his bed. He strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah? The Hethite. So in this, in this condition, David goes up onto the roof. It doesn't tell us, there's no real indication here that David is going on the roof because he's looking for someone, looking for a woman to lust after. There's no indication in this text here or anywhere else that Bathsheba was wanting to be seen or is culpable in any way in this sin that's, that we read about in these chapters. But David saw maybe even accidentally, and instead of looking away, he lets his mind and his heart engage in the evil, lustful desires. He finds out who this is even. It's it's Uriah's wife. Uriah is one of his mighty men, one of his closest men. And David's mind and his heart goes into evil desires, desiring something that God had forbidden, desiring someone who was not his to desire. And the the lust, the fantasy that, that begins in the heart, God's concerned about that as well. In, in the Ten Commandments, the last commandment says, do not covet, and then specifically mentions, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Jesus, when he's speaking, he says, uh, it's You've heard that it said don't commit adultery, but I tell you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, then you've, you've committed adultery in your heart. And what he's saying is it's, it's not good enough just to avoid the external act. I'm also concerned about your heart, your, your thoughts. He says the same thing about murder. He says it's not just enough to, to not kill a person. I'm also concerned about your evil, murderous hatred toward that person. God is concerned about what's going on in our minds and in our hearts, we need to be honest with ourselves. What are ways that we're engaging in the lustful desires of something that God has forbidden? It could be that we've let our minds wander toward a friend, a coworker, someone at the gym, a neighbor. Maybe it's all online, just electronic we think that it's, a, it's victimless, it's, it's harmless. And we've, we've allowed our, our eyes to linger on, on pictures or, or videos. And it, be, it just becomes, it snowballs and it grows into a deeper and deeper struggle. 
Maybe even feeling, some, some in here feeling stuck in patterns of addiction where you've, you've tried to change, you've tried to stop, but the, the lust, it just becomes so pervasive. God does care about what goes on in our hearts. And this step, the pathway to sin, it appears promising, it appears harmless, it appears pleasant, but each step is this downward descent into deeper and darker and more destructive habits. And this is, what, this is where David was finding himself quickly in, the, in, these, in these steps. But each of these steps was a chance. There, there's a warning here, and it is, it's good for us as well. There's a, there's a good warning here for us to make a U-turn, to turn back, to see, to see these warnings and to recognize there is mercy, there is grace, there is help. But David did not leave it internally. We'll read in verse 4 that David then moves toward action, toward self-indulgence. Let's read verses 4 and 5. David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and afterwards she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I'm pregnant. The CSB says here, what I was just reading, this version of the Bible says that he sent messengers to get her. The Hebrew word behind that is the word take. Uh, in the ESV, that's how it's translated, to take her. And it's the, same, it's the same word that Samuel warned about. When, when Israel wanted a king, Samuel warned the kings, if you want a king like the, the nations, that king is going to take and to take. And so David here is acting just like King Saul did as he takes and takes for himself. It's actually the same Hebrew word as well that's in, in Genesis 3, reading about the first sin as Adam and Eve sinned. The pattern there of, of Eve looking with her eyes and seeing something that was desirable, something that God had forbidden, but in her heart then she began to desire that. And then the next word is that she took and ate. And then her and Adam, they are, they're concealing, they're hiding, they're covering. And this is the same pattern that we see here for David. As he sees something that he wants and he takes it. We'll, we'll see in chapter 12 as well that the way that Nathan the prophet confronts David is to, to give an illustration where he's referring to Bathsheba as this innocent lamb who was slaughtered. This is starting to indicate that it, it seems like the implication here is that David's sin is actually more sinister even than just adultery as a king sending messengers, sending soldiers to go take this woman and bring her to himself. The evil desires in David's heart grew into external actions and self-indulgence as he just wanted something for himself, not thinking about others, not, not motivated by love, but by a lustful desire that then he was going to act on. Maybe you're flirting with this thought right now. That person that... that maybe has been a fantasy of, of maybe, maybe I can act on that. Maybe it wouldn't be that big of a deal. My spouse hasn't been treating me well. Don't desire her anymore. Surely just God wants me to be happy. 
that I can act on this, that no one will know, it won't be that big a deal. Maybe it's kind of the same temptation that Eve faced, the question in her mind of, did God really say? Does God really care about this? Is this really a sin? And the, the excuses that we can form in our minds around acting in self-indulgent, lustful, adulterous ways, it is a dangerous path that one step at a time becomes deeper and darker and more destructive. When Bathsheba becomes pregnant, David could have made a U-turn right there. Here's another, here's another warning flag to him. Warning sign saying, David, there are consequences to these actions. And that, that could have been a way for him to turn back and to repent. But instead, he takes another step. And that, that step is deceit. To cover it up. Read about it in verse 6. David sent orders to Joab, that's his military commander. and He says to him, send me Uriah, the Hethite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going, just making small talk with him. Then he said to Uriah, go, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants, and he did not go down to his house. When it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home. David questioned Uriah, haven't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah answered David, the ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. So David's first thought is, okay, I can, I can make this go away. I'll bring Uriah home. He'll go home. He'll sleep with his wife. They will think that is the, where the child came from. And yet Uriah here, this Hethite, has more integrity than the anointed king of Israel. As, as he says, no, I could not do this, David, even on your life. I could never do this. My, my, my fellow soldiers, I, I need to stand in solidarity with them. And, and as a rule, we have as soldiers that, that we will not engage in sexual relations while we're in active duty. And, and that even includes now. And so he, he sleeps just at the palace door with some of the others who are defending Jerusalem. You'd think, man, that's another just blow to David. Imagine what, what that would have felt like as, as his friend, this mighty man of Uriah, is, is acting in, in integrity, but yet it actually probably upset David, and, and now he's getting more desperate, and he, he comes up with another plan. Okay, I'll get him drunk. See if he goes then. I will make him vulnerable to temptation in drunkenness, and then send him home. So verse 12 says, stay here today also. David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. And then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him. David got him drunk. He went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants, but he did not go home. So even drunken Uriah has more integrity in this moment than David, but but let's, let's look back at David. How, 
how does he get here? Where the, the sin just keeps naturally taking steps into more deceit. That is a natural response when we're afraid of getting caught, when we're afraid that someone's going to find out. David probably had all sorts of justifications in his mind of why it would actually be better maybe for the people of Israel for me to keep this hidden and to keep this in the dark. It'll be better for my relationship with, with Uriah if he never knows. It will be better for the troops. Think of the morale of the troops if they find out that I, have, I haven't been faithful to, to my duties and I, I haven't been faithful to Yahweh and to Torah. What would it do to the nation if they find out that their leader has acted in this way? And so he has all these justifications possibly in his mind. But for some reason, he thinks deceit, keeping this in the dark, keeping this hidden will be better. He's playing now the role of deceiver. And yet, in this, we see David himself is being deceived. And he's taking steps further and further into darkness. And, and, and you, might, you might be there right now as well. And again, there's a gracious reminder to you and, and warning to you that, that that way isn't the way to joy in life. D David's actually reflecting on this later in Psalm 32. He's reflecting on the joy of what happened when this got brought into the light and he found forgiveness rather than living in deceit. He says, how Joyful, this is Psalm 32 too. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity. David has found forgiveness. But then listen to what else he says, the next line. He says, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from groaning all day long. David's reflecting back, I assume on this case right here when he's living in deceit, keeping silent, keeping it to himself, trying to keep it hidden, and he's reminding the miserable effect that it had on him, and, and he's lifting up in, in front of all of us today. This is what the effect that it can have on us today is this warning to say, no, that, that path looks good, but it's not. That path looks right, but it's not. It's actually what's making you rot inside. The misery of trying to keep that hidden and trying to keep the story straight and, and trying to, to, to manipulate everything, it, it destroys us inside. Maybe you're good at playing the role of deceiver. Maybe right now you haven't been caught, but in your mind you already know how you will respond. You already have the alibi. You already have the story lined up. You already have the excuses lined up. In your mind, you're prepared to deceive. Or, or you've been doing that for a long time. And each lie gets easier and easier. And yet, just like David, when we play the role of deceiver, it is us. It's, it's us who's actually being deceived into thinking that that's, that's the way of joy and that's the way of life. And then there's a final step that David takes into just deadly desperation. His vulnerability turned into lust, which turned into self-indulgence, which, which then turned into deceit and covering it up. And now it just grows into this sin where David would have looked back on this and just thought, how in the world could I have gotten here? 
But he's not, he's not there to reflect at that point. So let's look at verse 14 and following to read David's deadly desperation. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. He sent it with Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting and then withdraw from him so that he's struck down and dies. Man. Think of the, the coldness of David's heart at this moment that to, to just say those words. This, this plan to cause the death of Uriah. Verse 16, when Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab. Some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hethite also died. Joab sent someone to report to David all the details of the battle. He commanded the messenger, when you finish telling the king all the details of the battle, if the king's anger gets stirred up and he asks you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you realize they would shoot from the top of the wall? At Thebes, who struck Abimelech, son of Jerubasheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the top of the wall so that he died? So why did you get so close to the wall? So Job's saying, if David asked that, here's all you need to say to him. Your servant Uriah the Hethite is dead also. Then the messenger left. When he arrived, he reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger reported to David, the men gained the advantage over us, came out against us in the field. We counterattacked right up to the entrance of the city gate. However, archers shot down on your servants from the top of the wall and some of the king's servants died. Your servant Uriah the Hethite is also dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this matter upset you. The sword devours all alike. Intensify your fight against the city and demolish it. Encourage him. Just stop there and think. David just realized his plan worked. This cold, calculated, premeditated, murderous plan worked. And here's response. Here's his response. Don't worry about it. This is just what happens in battle. Go, go encourage him. Listen to Uriah's response, or Bathsheba's response. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. It is frightening to just read this story of David's descent, to see how his heart becomes more and more cold, more and more dark, as he descends into deeper and darker and more destructive and even deadly habits. It reminds us of what James says about our sin in James 1, each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. So it starts there with internal. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Or like the proverb, Proverbs 14, Proverbs 14 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a person 
but its end is the way to death. Lying and deceit, as it, as it continues to grow, it, be, it becomes more and more desperate. The fear of getting caught continues to consume us, consume people, and it drives into deeper and deeper desperation. Someone's secret, maybe, is just find, found out by a spouse, and it, it drives them into desperate measures. And sometimes we do hear about this is what prompts murder, or maybe sometimes it is this fear of getting caught that, that causes people to think, even if, they, even if they believe this child in their womb is a child, to think that death is more important than this being found out. Or, or all kinds of other desperate ways that that leads us into decisions that otherwise we would never imagine doing. But step by step, we're hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There could be a couple wrong ways to hear this text today. It could be that you're here and you're thinking, this doesn't apply to me. Kind of like, the way this friend that I opened with said, I used to think about people like that, and I just thought, how could they, with disgust, just thinking, I could never. Paul warns us about that kind of pride. When in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, the, exa- the things that happen in the Old Testament stories, those happen to us for examples. And then he says, and, and beware Lest you think, if you think I stand, he says, watch out lest you fall. Uh, Hebrews 3, I've already referenced it, but let me just read it. He says in Hebrews 3, 12, watch out, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, he says, watch out so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And then he describes how that could happen. He says, encourage each other daily while it is called today. Why? So that none of you is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's, there's, there's gracious warnings here to us saying sin is deceitful. And, and gradually and intentionally, one step at a time, we can start walking down this path deceitfully thinking uh, blindly thinking that this, this way is what is going to lead to what I want. This way is going to lead me to the most pleasure or the, the most joy or the most satisfaction in this life. And there are warnings to us from God's word saying, no, actually that way is destructive. So one wrong response to this kind of a passage would just, would be, just be to say, I'm not vulnerable to Another wrong response would be to sit here and just feel overwhelmed with guilt that leads to despair and hopelessness. And to not set this in the context of the gospel and and the Bible story and even the chapter that we're going to look at next week as as David does repent and find grace. Because there, there is what David's failure in temptation reminds us of is that we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every every point was tempted, just like we are, yet without sin. 
There's only one person ever in this world who has stood the test of every temptation and did not give into it and did not fail. And that is Christ. And he lived in our place and he died in our place. And this story of David's failure should also point us to where the answer is. That as, as we turn away from our sin, wherever you are possibly on, this, on these steps, Every step is a chance to turn back to Christ. And there's a call for us then to to find in him joy and life and mercy and grace and forgiveness. When I was driving down that wrong road, I didn't have GPS on. I don't know for sure if I had GPS even at the time. It was a long time ago. But if I did, if I had my GPS on, what's the first thing that I would have heard? What's the first word of warning that I would have heard. Recalculating. In 400 feet, make a U-turn. And then every mile that I'm driving down the interstate, in 400 feet or in a half mile, take exit 12B. And over and over again, I would have heard these warnings and reminders that you're going the wrong way. And the earlier that I would have heard that and turned, the fewer the consequences would have been. But, but there, there is a call then for us to, to, to look at our lives and evaluate maybe early on, just are there ways that I'm opening myself up and becoming vulnerable to temptation? I'm putting myself in situations. I'm allowing myself to be in places where I'm going to be more susceptible to giving in. Or our own lusts and our desires and what's going on in our mind and the things that we're allowing ourselves to look at. Or in even the step of action and, and, and adultery or other types of external action and selfishness and self-indulgence, or we're in the stage of deceit and decept, deceptiveness. De- I don't think that's a word, but you know what I mean. Whatever it is, deceitfulness, that's it. it where, wherever we are in that stage, or it's grown even into just deadly, devastating desperation. There's a warning for us to turn to turn to Christ because the joy, the, the sin that promises joy and life, it leads to the grave. But turning to Christ, in him there is mercy, there is grace, there is life. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your mercy in salvation, your saving grace, your saving mercies, that even even a difficult warning type of passage like this, God, is your grace to us, warning us from our own deceitful hearts that lead us to devastating consequences. God, help us to turn to you and find life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.